Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I hope you have your copy of God's Word in hand. If you do, let's open now to Romans chapter 4. If you didn't bring your Bible, there are a few Bibles available to those in the worship center. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 25, our text today, the title of the message, The Patience of Saving Faith. Here in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has called two witnesses from history to testify to the truth of salvation. Salvation is the way in which a person can be made right with a holy God. And of course, the theme of this entire book is the answer to that question, which in an economy of words is simply justification by faith in Christ alone. These two witnesses that Paul, as a prosecuting attorney, calls to the stands are very famous, especially in the Jewish community, Abraham and David. And Paul gives a special attention to Father Abraham. So in our text this morning, Paul is describing the faith of Abraham and the patience and enduring quality of that faith. He says that Abraham persevered in the faith even when it seemed illogical to do so. And he's calling upon all believers to persevere in a similar way in the faith. And I pray that the example of Abraham's endurance will encourage your hearts this morning as a New Testament saint. So let's read the text, Romans 4.16. Paul writes, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gave life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So your descendants shall be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. He did not waver in unbelief. That's our theme today, the patience, the endurance of saving faith, but instead grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. May the Lord bless this, the reading of his inspired inerrant word. Now in verses 16 and 17, Paul is simply reiterating his thesis. He stops periodically through this chapter to restate his thesis that he stated in the beginning of chapter four, which is salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So justification of sinners is God's aim. We call that here his eternal redemptive plan. He's going and he determined before any of us was ever born to save a group of people unto himself, to be separate and distinct, a people of his own possession. 
And because God aimed to do that, we can rest assured he's going to accomplish it, right? The Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament that he who began a good work in you will accomplish it. No one is more powerful than God. Nothing can thwart his purposes or his decreed will. But the means by which God accomplishes his aim, which is salvation, is, the, is through grace. So grace is a gift. It's the power, the means that he accomplishes justification. Brother Tony pointed out last week in his sermon that it was not through keeping of commandments that we're saved, because if it were, no one would be saved. And it's not through circumcision, because if it were of circumcision, only the Jews would be saved. And so it must be of something else. And that something else is grace. Now, faith then is the basis of man's access to God's grace. It's how we get in on it. Not of works, it's of faith. Now, that was true of Abraham. And it's been true of every saved person in the past and will be true of every saved person in the future. So the Apostle Paul holds up Father Abraham as the prototype of salvation and of faith. And what is true of Abraham is also true of Abraham's descendants. See, the Jewish people thought of Abraham as their father, but Paul says God's eternal redemptive plan goes far beyond just the nation of Israel. Remember when God first came to Abram, that was his name, it meant father of many. And we said it must have pained him as he grew older not to have any children because every time his name was uttered, it reminded him that he had no children, no descendants to leave his wealth to. But then God came to him and said, I'm changing your name to Abraham, which goes a step beyond you're a father of many. It means you're a father of many nations, plural Nations, not just the nation of Israel. This is his point, that all of us who are children of God trace our spiritual ancestry to Abraham. He says, not just those who are of the law, that would be the Jews, but all of those who are of the same faith as Abraham. See, what makes us part of the household of God is our common faith in Jesus Christ, not our common genetics. I've been reminded of that over the last two weeks. Less than two weeks ago, Monday, 13 days ago, I started my work week with a prayer breakfast with 20 Spanish-speaking pastors in the city of Keller. And then the next Sunday, I had lunch with Vietnamese pastors and their fellowship. And then I got on a plane and headed to Kenya and worshiped last week in a setting in which I was the only Anglo in the room. And I thank the Lord, as I do this morning, that what unites Believers all over the world is not our genetics. It's our common faith in Christ. So let's look closer at this faith that Paul keeps referring to. Number one point on your outline today, when faith seems illogical. Look at verse 18. It says, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which has been so spoken. So shall your descendants be. And if we're honest, we have to admit that it seems illogical that the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things, would care enough about one of his seemingly insignificant creatures enough to die in their place. Seems illogical that God would choose an idolater in the middle of the Middle East to be the means through which every nation on earth would be blessed. It seems illogical for that man to leave everything behind him that he knew to go to a place that he'd never been before, simply based on the promises of God. Now you'll note that I said 
that faith seems illogical to a lost world. However, the Bible and the gospel are reasonable. There is great evidence for the truth claims of the Bible. Ours as Christians is a reasonable faith. It's not a blind shot in the dark. We don't check our brains or we shouldn't at the door when we come into the church service. Two of the objections though, that, that so many who say the Bible is illogical hang their hat upon are two that Paul points out here. The fact that God gives life to the dead. We call that regeneration in spiritual terms. We call it resurrection in physical terms. It's illogical because none of us have ever seen it happen. Another objection we hear a lot is an objection that God can call into being that which does not exist. Ex nihilo, creation. We teach and believe here that God literally created everything in the universe in six 24-hour periods. He said, let there be, and there was. He, he didn't go to the Home Depot and find some building materials and put it together. Those things didn't exist. He created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. Paul's point is that's how he answered Abraham's questions and how he fulfilled his promises. Out of nothing. Only God can do that. We sometimes say, well, that's a creative person. But it's a different kind of creativity than God displays in his creation. What we mean is a creative person can take the raw materials that God has made and arrange them in such a way that we find interesting or appealing. A musician who's creative takes the musical notes that God has put in the universe and arranges them in the way that we find winsome or attractive or beautiful. A woodworker can chop down a tree that God created and spin it on a lathe and turn it into something useful and beautiful, but only God can create out of nothing. And so we don't have anything to compare it to, so therefore we must take it upon faith. Now what is faith? Well, the classic definition biblically is Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's trusting in something that you cannot prove, that you've never seen or experienced. That's why Abraham is referred to by Paul as the father of all of those who have faith. He is the prototype, the model of all who put their faith in Christ. See, the cross was still hundreds of years in the future from Abraham's perspective, but he believed God that through his seed, all the families of the world would be blessed. I said two weeks ago that the Abrahamic covenant came in three parts or episodes between God and Abraham. The first is recorded in Genesis chapter 12, where God gave him the original promises. And then Genesis 15, the ceremony in which he put Abraham to sleep and he cut the animals in half and he walked through and ratified this unilateral covenant. And then in Genesis chapter 17, where he gave to Abraham the confirmation of this covenant, the sign of circumcision. Listen to Genesis 17, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. You see, in God's mind, 
even though Abraham was already 99 years old and his wife was postmenopausal, God is reiterating his promise that he's going to make a great nation and many great nations through his own body. And so Abraham certainly must have found that hard to believe. But in God's mind, it was already accomplished. See, the scripture says he sees the end from the beginning. I've heard it compared to Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is coming up in a few days, incidentally. If you've ever been to that, you sit on the corner of a street on the sidewalk, and you can see a few feet on either side of you. Whatever is passing by in front of you, that's your experience. But God sees the end from the beginning. He sees it from his perspective. He knows everything that's going on at once. And that's the way it was with the promise he made to Abraham. In God's mind, it had already been accomplished. Well, decades had passed since God's original calling and promise. What does the life of Abraham teach us about when the fulfillment of God's promises are delayed? See, Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran, headed for the promised land. We don't know exactly how old he was when God first came to him in Ur of the Chaldeans. But decade after decade had passed and God's promises had not been fulfilled. And so secondly, let's see beginning in verse 19, when fulfillment is delayed. It says, speaking of Abraham, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now in Genesis 17, 24 years have passed since the original promises of Genesis 12 in Haran. And Abraham is described as through that quarter of a century as having hope against hope. That he was clinging to the possibility with little or no justification from a human perspective. Anyone would look at that and say, Abraham, why do you keep on believing? It's not going to happen. But that's what true faith is. It's confidence in, it's trust, it's belief and Abraham remained confident that God was going to keep his promise. But let's be honest, Abraham's faith was imperfect, wasn't it? It was imperfect, but it was genuine. And when Jesus was talking about faith to his disciples, he said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's not the size of our faith, but it is the genuineness and the quality of our faith that's most important. Abraham believed God was going to keep his promises, but there were times in which he thought God needed a little help to do that, didn't he? And when there was a famine, God told him he was going to keep him alive until all these promises were fulfilled. Well, Abraham said, well, God's going to keep his promises. I've got to keep myself alive. Let me go off to Egypt where there's food. God didn't tell him to do that. Later on, as he got older, he said, well, God can keep his promise of multiplying my seed, but it must be through a different woman. So let me take Hagar, have a child through her. And Ishmael was not the child of promise. God came back and said, no, but it's through your seed, through Sarah's seed. But through it all, though his faith was often weak and imperfect, he never lost his faith. He persevered in faith. Scripture says, he that perseveres to the end, he shall be saved even when circumstances seem to indicate he shouldn't. That's what he means when he says he hoped against hope. The circumstances seem to indicate that he should just give it up. 
And he points out two specific circumstances of Abraham's life that seemed the logical time to hang it up. Number one, his own age and health. God has said, you're going to have children, Abraham, naturally, with your wife. He turned 99 years old, and he contemplated his own body. He said, I'm as good as dead. <laughs> you ever felt that way about your body? Abraham did. And then the second, he looked at his wife, <laughs> and he contemplated her age and said, look, we, we can't overcome this. I, I believe you, God, but I don't know how you're going to do it. In fact, as time went on, I suspect others began to discourage his faith if his experience is like our own. We all know them. I call them ministers of discouragement, pastors of criticism. They don't want anyone to get too close to the Lord. And so they are quick to point out your faults and your failures and your lack of achievement. Abraham certainly must have had them in his life. Can I give you two free pieces of advice? Number one, don't be one of those people. Don't be a discourager. Be a Barnabas. Encourage one another. First Thessalonians 5, 11 says, encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. Don't tear one another down. And two, if you have people that, like that in your life, don't listen to them. 30 years ago, when I was 20 years old, I sensed a call to be a pastor. And I went to a man who led our college ministry on campus at Mississippi State and shared my heart with him. I was expecting him to say, Keith, praise the Lord, help you any way I can. You know what he said? You'll never make it. You're not a leader. You're not cut out for that. Maybe you can be in the background and help others, but you're not a pastor. Well... I'm glad I didn't listen to him. The Lord knows. He put that in my heart, and maybe he's put some things in your heart. Don't, don't be a discourager and don't listen to discouragement. And so Abraham surely must have been discouraged. And, and if I can make a digression from the text here, I want to talk about when our faith is mocked. We're talking about persevering and not giving up in the faith. History and the Bible show us that God's people have always been, and I suspect will always be mocked for their faith. Can you imagine Noah? <laughs> I always think about Noah, who was told to build a big boat and that God was going to send a flood and destroy the earth. But here's a little thing we often forget about that. It had never rained on earth when he gave him that promise. And I can imagine as, as Noah and his sons were hammering away for over a hundred years on this boat, the comments people must have made as they passed by. Well, look at that genius. He's building a boat. He says the Lord's going to wipe us all out. And I suspect right up until the very moment that first big raindrop hit someone right between the eyes, they were belittling and, and mocking Noah. And yet he persevered. He never gave up on the Lord's promise. I mean, we certainly know that the greatest example of enduring through mocking is the Lord Jesus. Even as he hung on the cross, there were those mocking and jeering. Even one of the thieves hanging next to him thought himself so superior to Jesus. And people were saying, look at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. 
I think there's a great passage of Scripture that tells us how to endure this kind of treatment. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bible, let's turn there quickly. 1 Peter chapter 3, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning in the third verse. The Apostle Peter was eyewitness to a lot of the mocking and slander and abuse that the Lord Jesus endured. He remembered that Jesus said that a servant is not better than his master. In fact, Jesus told Peter very clearly that he was going to endure some terrible things before he died. So Peter writes this for our encouragement. Second Peter 3 verse 3, Now know this first of all, that in the last days, what are the last days? The last days of time from Jesus' ascension into his second coming. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. He uses the example of Noah that I just gave to you. He says, people are going to come in the last days and go, you keep saying Jesus is going to return. Where is he? We're going on with life. He's not coming. You fool. Peter says, well, they forgot. That's what they were saying in Noah's day. And then the rain began to fall. Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, yet for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but his patience towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. You see, from the world's perspective, it is illogical and even foolish to continue believing in the Savior's promise to return for his church as 2,000 years have passed and he's not yet come. This is why I say our faith must be patient. Oh, we must look to men like Abraham and Job and Noah as examples for two reasons, Peter says. Number one, because God does not reckon time like we do. <laughs> I was in a city this week that was established in the year 900. We have such a limited perspective on history, don't we? But from God's perspective, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years one day. He's not lost patience, neither should we. And the second reason we should be patient is because the reason for his delay. The reason that God has not yet sent Christ for his church is not due to lack of ability to fulfill his promises. Would you agree? The Bible says because he's patient, he's long-suffering. He's giving us one more opportunity to repent. But one day... That wind of opportunity will shut tight and the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise and Christ will return. Brothers, encourage one another to endure, be patient in faith as Abraham was. Fourthly, look at verse 20 back in our text in Romans chapter 4. Not only when mocking comes, but when testing comes. Verse 20 says, yet... 
speaking of Abraham's faith, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Note that phrase, underline it, highlight it. Abraham grew strong in faith. Let me ask you a question. How does one grow strong in faith? Well, the book of James says it's through testing. James 1, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Was Abraham's faith tested over the course of his life? Well, you better believe it. Let's just let me rehearse a few of them. One, he was tested familiarly. He was tested with a wife who laughed originally at the promises of God. And one who grew impatient and pushed her handmaiden Hagar on him. It was tested with the turmoil that was created of that union with Ishmael and Hagar and Sarah. It was tested through natural disaster, through famine and warfare. It was tested economically when God instructed him to leave everything behind and start over fresh in a place that he'd never been before. It was tested sometimes by God's own hand, especially, I think Paul's thinking about here, when God told Abraham, even after the child of promise was born, Isaac, to go and sacrifice him upon the altar. And what did Abraham do? He was willing to do it. He gathered wood and loaded a donkey and went up to the mountain and bound up his son and lifted up the knife and God was testing him. There was a ram in the bush that God had provided, but Abraham was so full of faith that he believed even if Isaac's life were taken, God was powerful enough to raise him up. That's the point. His faith was imperfect, but it grew over time. And friends, in a New Testament perspective, that, that's what we mean when we're encouraging you to make progress in sanctification. In the next service, we're going to have a baptism of a new believer. We don't have the same expectations of maturity of a new believer as we do someone who's been walking the Lord for 30 years. We shouldn't. Any more than we have an expectation that a newborn infant just brought home from the hospital is capable of the things that a 21-year-old healthy adult is. No. But we're to make progress over the course of our life. We are to grow in grace, grow in maturity, and, and grow in faith. And how do you grow in faith? It's by enduring tests with patience. Received a question this week in a Q&A. What's the difference between a, a testing and a temptation? Well, a temptation is a solicitation to evil. The Bible says we're never to ascribe that to God. He is not tempted, neither does he tempt. But God does allow testing, and sometimes he sends testing directly. Why? To grow our faith, to prove the quality of our faith, to separate us from sin. It's like a, a blade passed through fire over and again. Every time it goes through the flame, impurities are removed from it, and it becomes stronger, not brittle. So if you're going through a testing right now, thank the Lord, because he's revealing to you the quality of your faith and the trustworthiness 
of himself. Well, in conclusion, I, I want to give you some encouragement. That's really the point of today's message, to encourage you. Number one, as you think about the life of men like Abraham in the Bible, don't be intimidated by their faith. The, the Bible doesn't include the stories of men like Abraham and Job and Noah and Elijah to intimidate us and to think, well, I can never be like that. I might as well give up. Just the opposite. It's what James said about Elijah's prayer life. He says, Elijah was a man of like faith like us. Yes, he did some great things, but he also ran and hid from a woman, Jezebel. He prayed and it didn't rain three and a half years. He prayed again and it did rain. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's to encourage us in our prayer life, not to intimidate us. So don't be intimidated by Abraham's faith. It was real, but like ours, it was sometimes weak. He failed like we do, but he never ultimately abandoned his faith because he that endures to the end will be saved and rewarded. Was Abraham's faith ultimately rewarded? It took decades, but yes, it was. God ultimately did everything that he said he was going to, to do. And if you will endure in faith, your faith too will be rewarded. Be encouraged. Jesus said of himself that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That's when the promises were fulfilled. Not just when Isaac was born, but when all the nations of the earth were blessed through the coming Messiah. Abraham rejoiced when he saw it. And we will rejoice if we work and faint not until our death or the coming of the Lord. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, let's not become discouraged in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we faint not. If we don't give up, if we endure, all the promises of God will prove to be yes and amen. If you're here today and you're still asking the question, how can I be made right with God? Follow the example of Abraham's faith. Let me just conclude by, by reading the last three verses of Romans 4. Speaking of Abraham's faith, Paul writes, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sakes also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Follow the example of Abraham and trust in Christ. Abraham looked forward in anticipation to the fulfillment of God's promises that through his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that was fulfilled in, in two very important truths. Number one, the death of Christ. See, the death of Christ was the atonement, the redemption of sinners that was purchased by his sinless life and was verified and affirmed through his resurrection. That's why the Apostle Paul is so tenacious as you look at the New Testament, so insistent that we not leave out the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. In fact, as we'll study a little later on in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, in summarizing the gospel in one verse, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, the resurrection is the affirmation that 
all the promises of God are, are true. So if you're a lost person here today, if you're asking the question, how can I be made with God, right with a holy God? Abraham's life answers the question. By faith alone, by the grace of Christ alone in what he accomplished. Not what you can do. Not in some ceremony. Not in circumcision, but only through faith in Christ. Now, if you're a Christian here today, I want to leave these words with you. James chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. It's not far off. Now, I don't know when the Lord's coming. I do know this. It's 2,000 years closer than it was when Paul wrote the church at Rome. It's near. And in the meantime, he says, don't complain, brothers, against one another. Rather, encourage one another, I think he's saying, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's saying, look at the Old Testament. And rather than be intimidated by their faith, use them as an example. They were imperfect. Remember I told you two weeks ago, God showed us David and Abraham, warts and all, because he wants to know they're men just like you are. They sinned, they fall, and yet they persevered, they endured in faith, and they were rewarded for it. Verse 11, he says, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord, here's the summary line under everything I've said today, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He will keep his promises, won't he? As we endure until the end. Let's thank him for that. Let's ask for help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this example of Abraham. He's not God. He's a man like us. He had failures. And yet the course of his life was a trajectory of sanctification. He learned to trust in you through many dangers, toils, and snares. The trials of his life, the testings, Father, that we all go through purified his faith and made it strong. And Father, I pray for every believer in the sound of my voice that that would be the order of the day for us. That wherever we are in that continuum of maturity, that we are striving every day to make progress, to become more like Jesus all the time. And Father, we'd like it to be easy. We'd like to snap our fingers and have the sinful habits of our life go away. We'd like to have our faith deepen by just a wishful thought. Father, you tell us in James that we're to count it all joy when trials and testings come in our life because that is the means, those are the means through which you build patience and endurance into our life. And so Lord, we thank you for those trials. We thank you that we don't have to endure them alone. We thank you that you're not tempting or soliciting us to evil. Instead, you are helping us to grow stronger every day. And so, Father, we look to the example of men like Abraham and Job and Noah. And, and Father, I think of men and women in this church who've already gone to heaven, who we observe their life and we count them blessed because of their endurance. Lord, help us to run our race with endurance, to finish well, to have that quality of faith that we never give up. 
We never let go of you, knowing you'll never let go of us. We thank you for that blessed truth. May it encourage your hearts today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.